get up, get, get up, get up. What's up, Mets fans? Welcome back to another episode of the Mets Up Podcast, episode number 162, and we're super excited to do a little bit of a season preview interview with Mike Petriello, baseball writer, MLB.com. You've seen him all over Twitter, too. He's one of the smartest guys right now talking about baseball, and we're super excited to have Mike here talking about the New York Mets for the 2023 season, as well as just baseball in general. So first off, Mike, thank you so much for being here with us. Uh, appreciate it. No, thanks for having me, guys. Excited. So, uh, I mean, first off, this is just it's it's kind of new because it's coming out today kind of actively as we're we're speaking right now is MLB Network is doing their top 10 right now and you've dropped your top 10 starting pitcher list. So we want to kind of just go through it and maybe, you know, pick your brain a little bit. James is a huge pitching guy. James is what we call the pitching whisperer on this podcast. So I'm sure he'll have some uh, some good questions for you here. But the top 10, just for those of you guys who have not seen it yet. Number one, Jacob deGrom. Two, Aaron Nola. Three, Sandy Alcantara. Four, Corbin Burns. Five, Justin Verlander. Six, Carlos Rodon. Seven, Shane McClanahan. Eight, Kevin Gaussman. Nine, Framber Valdez. And 10, Shohei Otani. So, Mike, maybe you can give the listeners and viewers at home a little insight. I know it's top 10 right now, but what really goes into your rankings or what you're looking for with your pitchers? Yeah, I've been doing this for 10 years now, I think. And uh, this is always the most difficult one because some other positions, it's like, oh, yeah, top seven. And then I guess I'll fill out the bottom three in this one. It's like there's so many good starting pitchers. I I think I had uh, 31 guys on my initial list that I had to cut down. Like, I, I think the way to explain how deep this position is, is let me give you like a top 10 of guys who did not make my top 10. All right. Uh, Dylan Cease, Max Scherzer, <laughs> Max Freed, Spencer Strider, Shane Bieber, Garrett Cole, Alec Manoa, Luis Castillo, Logan Webb. <laughs> it's like there's and like, oh, what about Julio Urias? You know, what about 10 other guys? It's it's obscene how difficult it is to try to put a starting pitcher list together and, and stop at 10. Funnily, like as these rankings were coming out today, I just kind of tried to ride the wave a little bit and just posted my own, just, you know, try and farm some engagement, talk to the people a little bit. And um, I just I always had immense respect for Garrett Cole just from the consistency year over year pitching in Yankee Stadium, the American League East schedule he has to play against every year. He's someone you did not have in your top 10 can you explain why just because then i've had would have had to bump somebody else honestly like eric cole is very good so you know he was certainly one of the guys i considered and you know at this point you really gotta you gotta try hard to find reasons not to include some of these guys you know like spencer strider for example what's the only reason not to include him well there's not a full season track record right for cole it was uh you know the last couple of years really the home runs have been up and, you know, again, it's like nitpicking. Like, Garrett Cole's yeah. amazing. He threw 200 innings last year. Like, I'm not I'm not complaining about Garrett Cole. But, you know, to get on the top 10, it's like you have to be the best of the best. And now it's like, I don't know, three or four years in a row, I think, where the, the long ball's been a bit of a problem. And uh, that's that's kind of it. That's, like, really all it takes at this point. I saw at the number five spot, I feel like Mets fans are really interested to hear your take on Justin Verlander. New free agent coming off the Cy Young season. I mean, everybody knows he's good. But what what in your eyes makes him a top five pitcher? Yeah, I think the thing people uh, forget about this list sometimes is that it's, it's just projecting forward to the next season. I don't care if he's going to be any good the season after that, because then that's next year's problem. And, you know, he's 40 years old or 41 or whatever he's going to be. I'm not really betting on him for more than one year. But, you know, you look at what he did last year. I'm not saying he's a 175 ERA guy. That seems pretty unlikely to me. And I know, you know, the strikeouts were down just a little bit. But, um, you know, the way he came back from Tommy John at that age was really, I think, we don't actually talk about it enough. Like, I know he won the side and everything, but you look at the way he just has not walked anybody. Like, I think his walks per nine have been under two for like four or five straight years, and he's still 
striking guys out and he's still preventing home runs like better last year than I think he has in a bunch of years. And when I looked at his performance, I kind of said, is there any reason to not bet on this guy for this upcoming season? And aside from age, not really. Like when when he's when's the last time has he pitched and not been very good? Like a decade yeah. ago. It's a good point. Uh probably one, two, maybe more questions I have on this. I have two. Maybe Mark has one, but I wanna I want to throw out two right now quickly. One, I'm gonna ask you another guy about an omission. Max Scherzer, I'm sure Mets fans would like to know why maybe Max Scherzer is not in this top 10. Number two, talking about you're know, like projecting for the next year. If you had to pick a guy who was outside of, say, your top 20 that you just gave us, who you think could conceivably be in the top 10 next year, who would be your pick? Well, Max Scherzer is not here because I hate the Mets. Let's totally make that clear <laughs> for everybody. No, I mean, yeah, no, I, know he's, I know he's younger than Verlander is, but over the last couple of years, it just you know, there always seems to be some kind of ache or pain, like nothing major, but just these little things that pop up. And, you know, we threw what, like 140 innings or so last year. And then the year before, you know, with the Dodgers, especially he had the thing in the playoffs. And I have no reason to think he won't be very good, obviously, because he's insanely good. But he is someone, you know, I, I wasn't going to put both of those older Mets pitchers on the top 10. And I kind of I think I trust Verlander a little more to pitch more innings next year. Uh, even if that's kind of a weird risk to take on a guy who's going to be 40 years old. So that's why, I mean, is Scherzer in that next group of, you know, 10 names or whatever? Uh, yes, he is. And then how far do I have to go outside the top 25? Is that what you said? Cause that's uh, any, just any of the guys you didn't name. Cause I know you gave the 10, then you said you rambled up yeah. the next 10 or eight or whatever it was. Um, <laughs> I can't remember if I said Logan Webb, but I love Logan Webb. I feel like Logan Webb could. He was oh, the last guy you said. God, did I say Zach Wheeler? If whoever I didn't say, I'm saying <laughs> There we go. Zach Wheeler. Zach Wheeler is a guy I wish I had. Uh, You know, there's going to be some interesting rookies. Like I'm I'm interested as you all are to see like Grayson Rodriguez, but I'm certainly not willing to put him up in that conversation at this point. Like I really like, you know, Nick Lodolo. um, But am I talking about him in a top 25 context right now? I don't think that I am. Uh, But yeah, if I, if I didn't say like Wheeler, then that's a guy I really wish I'd stuck. Yeah, Wheeler's pretty good. The, I feel like the National League East in general, the pitching is yeah. pretty insane in that division. Like you, you named the guys that didn't make the list, and that would be some of the aces or some of the best pitchers in a lot of divisions of baseball. It feels like. Yeah, absolutely. Like I said, it's starting pitching is just so good, and I feel like people don't think it's a golden age because the guys aren't throwing three hundred innings like Bob Gibson would. But if you just look at the talent, like it's left and right, it's it's a really cool time to be watching pitching. It's also just so much more data and science and pitching now than there ever was, and it really helps these guys develop. And that's going to be a little segue now to talking about StatCast and all the work you've done there. Because I think StatCast is something that's kind of, well, what's what I'm looking for? Kind of like educated, like an entire new generation of baseball fans into some more kind of deeper under, understandings of certain things, especially pitching. So I guess it's another broad question I'm going to ask you, another two-part there. What do you think is is the best thing that StatCast has brought to the um, evolution, analyzation of baseball? And then what do you think, if anything, you could decline, is possibly the worst <laughs> thing or a negative consequence of the of the development of StatCast? That's a loaded question. Um, I mean, the best thing is some of the things, I guess there's two answers to that, right? Some of the things that are being measured now, I think we're going to look back and say, man, I can't believe we never were able to track that. Just like, how hard did somebody hit the ball? How fast did a guy run? Like the, the base level skills, the you know, how many people ask me, like, do you think we can uh, know Barry Bonds's exit velocity? And like, no, we, we can't. But that kind of stuff just now seems so basic that the the fact that we didn't have that and how quickly it's gotten involved in uh, analysis and everything. Um, and then the second part of that is it's not just writers. It's not just people on TV talking about it. How quickly the players themselves 
have used this to improve their games. I mean, there's so many examples. If you want to go back to the the launch angle guys like Justin Turner and JD Martinez, but really now it's the pitchers. Um, you know, Corbin Burns is a, an example I love. You know, in a ERA of like eight and a half, and now he's basically been my top five pitcher for the last couple of years because they figured out how the pitches moved and they used the data. And I, I kind of get a kick out of it when people are like, "Wow, guys from years ago didn't have this data." And it's like, okay, but. You think if Tony Gwynn didn't have access to this, if, if Ted Williams had access to this, they wouldn't use it. <laughs> it's like when people are like, oh, well, my grandparents didn't stare at their cell phone all day. And it's like, yeah, but if, if they had a cell phone, they would have stared at it. All day. Yes. <laughs> it's like, that's the way it works. Probably freaked out if they found a yeah, cell phone. Exactly. <laughs> so I, I just think that it's, it's information. You know, it's 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 stuff we almost will forget that we didn't have at some point. Uh, what's the negative aspect of it? I mean, I think sometimes uh, it can be used too often in places that don't necessarily call for it. Like if a guy hits a, just like a monstrous home run, I do want to know how hard it's hit. Do I care that much if he, you know, loops a single and it's 72 miles an hour of exit velocity? I probably don't. It probably gets obnoxious to some people sometimes. So there is probably too much of a good thing uh, for audiences that maybe don't desire or require it for every, uh, you know, single hit. But I guess I'll take that over the alternative, which is not having it at all. Well, I, th- I think that also brings up an interesting point, too, because last year the Mets had like a, a very unique team in the way that they played offensively. And you wrote an article, I think, in June about how the Mets really weren't hitting the ball hard, but were still a very good offensive team. And you were one of these guys who felt like was kind of pushing the the narrative that it doesn't matter that the Mets aren't hitting the ball hard because they are doing other things really well. So I feel like maybe for Mets fans, maybe you can help them a little bit understand more why you think the offense was still good, even though they weren't necessarily hitting for power or exit velo or something like that. Uh, it was, it was deep. I mean, it wasn't reliant on one star. It wasn't just like the Pete show, you know, yeah. uh, obviously Jeff McNeil had a great year and, and Nimmo and Canna and Marte and all these guys had a great year. Um, I, I do think it's possible to, it kind of depends on how you like to consume baseball, because I think a lot of the people who got upset by that were like, well, it doesn't matter that we're not hitting the ball hard. Who needs to hit the ball hard? And it's like, yeah, but if you go look at like every single year, the teams that hit the ball hard score more runs and eventually the balls, you know, it's not going to fall in. And you saw that in the playoffs a little bit, right? Like they yeah. had a total power outage. I'm sorry, James. I can see it shaking your head there. <laughs> I don't, I don't mean to bring up bad memory. No, it's still very open wounds. Mark knows it too. He's just yeah. better playing it off than yeah. I am on camera. No, so I wrote that. And I think the other thing I wrote that got Mets fans all upset was like, I wrote about, and I tried to paint this in a positive light. I think I titled it like they're making their own luck, right? But I pointed yeah. out that they had played just the most garbage defenses for like the first <laughs> two months. It was so much like Washington and the Giants and the Phillies before they fixed things up a little bit. And I was trying not to say like, this is the reason the Mets are scoring runs because like you got to press that. You got to put the ball in play and all that. And that's fine. But also those teams were playing terrible defense. And I think that did kind of even out a little bit. Like they started playing better teams. They stopped having like every ball go the right way and that the offense scuffled a little bit. And so when I look at them this upcoming season, I think they're going to be a good offense. I think they will be, I don't know, a top 10 run scoring team. Still think they're short that power bat. And maybe that's Alvarez at some point. Maybe they trade for somebody. But that is that is still one hole that they haven't been able to to fix. I do distinctly remember from that article, you put a split in there at some point where it was like Mets against the teams you said, like Giants, Phillies, Nationals, a bunch of bad teams, then the teams against who are good at defense. And one of them was actually the San Diego Padres, who the Mets did struggle with mightily in the regular season. And of course, it came back and hit us there. But moving on now, just talking about defense, you've done so much work in the development of defensive metrics, especially recently with OAA making major strides over the last couple of years. Could you 
maybe explain to our listeners what OAA is and then the difference between that and the Fangraph stats, DRS and UZR? Yeah, OAA stands for outs above average, and it is the StatCast defensive metric. Um, It's actually pretty simple. It's not entirely, but it is mostly based on how far did the guy have to go how much time did he have to get there and what direction did he have to go in? And then you can put a difficulty number on that. You know, we know that not every play is created equal. If difficulty, you could get a ground ball hit to you and you're expected to make it, but it doesn't give you that much credit. Most defensive metrics work that way. This one's just different because it's not the eye test. It's all tracking. You know, it's the numbers that go into it. Um, compared to the other ones, UZR, I haven't looked at in years because they don't know how to handle the shift. <laughs> so I was actually kind of wondering, like, that's a dead metric. Will it be a zombie metric this upcoming year when there's not the shift anymore? I don't actually know what's going to happen there. But I also don't think that that's being uh, actively developed anymore because the proprietor sort of fell off the face of the earth for a lot of reasons. Um, DRS is a, a one from Sports Info Solutions where it's like similar properties, uh, except they kind of combine StackS data and the eye test. I think they've got like human trackers. Um, I really like that they're there because... They provide us like a really good test, like a smell test. You know, if I see a guy where it's like, man, I kind of thought he'd rate better than that. Why does OAA really dislike him? And then sometimes I'll go check DRS and it's like, oh, they think he's not that good this year either. Okay. Gives me a little bit of confidence that we're we're catching on to something here. And, it, you know, it's really just, we all know that errors are sort of meaningless. My favorite stat right now, I think, is that Nicholas Castellanos hasn't been charged with an error in like a year and a half. <laughs> Because <laughs> you can't get an error if you can't get to the ball. I know he played well in the postseason and all, but um, so that's that's what it is. It's it's not errors. It's not about hits and errors. It's about was the play made and how difficult was that play to make. And looking at the Mets, I feel like defensively the Mets are one of the the stronger teams, especially now with I mean they implemented the shift a lot last year. But with Lindor and you have McNeil, Guillorme, you have a lot of I mean Nimmo in center field, Marte. You have a lot of really good defensive pieces. What kind of value do you think? having a good defensive team, especially now with the shift being gone, is going to have an impact in the upcoming season. It's going to be really interesting to watch. Like I'm I'm more excited for the season than I think I've been for any season a long time between the pitch timer and the positioning ban and all the other stuff. Um, I think a really interesting uh, place in the division to look to find that is going to be with the Marlins because they have really downgraded their defense. Like I do not like a middle infield of Luis Arise and Joey Wendell. And while I do think Jazz Chisholm could probably play center, it's his first time out there. Like there's going to be some growing pains. I think that's really going to hurt that that team's pitching staff, and they don't really have the offensive, you know, balance to get past that. Um, as for the Mets, I think it's pretty clear that it's helped. You know, Lindor, if he's not the best defensive shortstop, he's up there in my opinion. Like I do think it's overrated sometimes to say, oh well, you know, we built strength up the middle. But if you look at the Mets, like who is a weakness on defense? Like Alonzo's not great. He's adequate at first base. Um, catcher was a little bit of an issue last year sometimes with, with um, McCann. But, you know, Nito was pretty good. And I just like that there's really no glaring er- uh, issues here. There's no one who can't get to the ball. Like you saw that with the Phillies. You saw that with the Nationals, especially at shortstop. It's really hard to overcome that kind of stuff. And I know the Phillies had a great run, but kind of after they fixed some of the holes in their defense. So yeah. it always matters. And I think it might matter a little more this year. You mentioned Brandon Nimmo before, and he's a player who's made incredible defensive strides over the last couple of years, a huge a huge reason he got such a big payday this offseason. Can you at all speak to the improvements he's made, especially in terms of OAA, where he's gone from a player who was like below average to, I believe, last year around 90th percentile? Um, I think it's two things. I mean, he plays deeper, which is which is one thing. I mean, it's not he's not gaming the metric necessarily, but he's making the conscious choice to trade singles for extra base hits, which... 
you know, for 50 years, that's not what players would do. And I think now people are like, look, I let the single fall in. I don't care. I'm, I'm not going to get doubles and triples over my head. Uh, I also think he was just healthy last year. You know, he's not always been healthy in the past. And uh, a pretty good way to get to balls is, is to be healthy and have a great season. That's what he did. I don't think he's a gold glover. I don't look at him like he's Kiermaier or Buxton or anything. But when he signed the contract, I said to myself, you know, how long can he play center? It's not going to be the whole contract. Is it the next three or four years? Would I feel comfortable with him there? And then he goes to left field or DH or whatever. Yeah, I think so. And that's pretty good for that kind of contract. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. So with StackCast and all these these new statistics and everything, like the I feel like the hot buzzwords right now are Exavila, Launch Angle, OAA. What's maybe like the the under the radar stat that people aren't talking about enough that you think actually does have a lot of weight? Uh, that's a really good question. Um, you know, at the, it was like the very end of the regular season last year. So I'm not sure people even noticed it. We put out all the position player uh, throwing arm leaderboards, which I think was pretty cool. And, um, yeah. you know, it was like three days before the playoffs started. So great timing that. on our part there. <laughs> like, I don't know if that carries any you know, predictive value or in projections or anything like that. But that's another one of those things where it's, it's just measuring what you see. You know, it's not a complicated model. It's not an expected anything. It's just, I want to know who throws the ball the hardest. And I think the names at the top and the bottom of the list, they, you know, pass the smell test, right? Because <laughs> you have like Acuna at the top and, you know, a whole bunch of first basemen at the bottom. So that one's cool. We have, uh, hopefully before the regular season, a couple of cool catching metrics that we're working on that I think people will like. Uh, I think, you know, for, baseball history everybody's known you steal bases off the pitcher and not the catcher but catchers have always been judged on caught stealing percentage which is kind of garbage so we're working on that to take into account the speed of the runner or what kind of lead the, the pitcher let him get how fast he was to the plate and apply that to the catcher so i think that's going to be pretty cool i'm excited about that one we talked about um the pitch clock for a little bit before when we were talking about the shift but just to scale back to that what do you think affects the new pitch clock's going to have on the game? great uh, I don't have you guys, uh, well, uh, James, you know, you live in Brooklyn. Have, did you go to any Cyclones games last summer? We we went to a few two years ago, and Mark and I last year also went to the Fall League, and that was the first time okay. we saw the pitch it clock was in And we would do the thing where, like, yeah, in the fifth inning, you start talking to each other, and then you're like, oh my, it's only been two hours and 15 yeah. minutes. Like, we're in the so eighth I, inning. I now. asked that because that was the first time I saw it in person, was last summer. I went to a Cyclones game with my son. I'm like, this is great. I'm like, he just gets the ball and he throws the ball. And I know people get angsty about the idea that there might be a clock in baseball, but um, I, I think what's going to happen is the first three weeks or so are going to be rough, right? Uh, and then everybody's going to be like, this is amazing. Like if you go back to um, the umpires checking the, the sticky substances, whatever, 99% yeah. of the guys are like, oh, fine, no problem, no big deal. 
And of course, there were like two guys who lost their minds, like Max Scherzer, for example. <laughs> exactly right. Um, so you're, you're going to definitely have some issues where some of the veteran guys, especially, I think are going to have some trouble with it. I, I think we underestimate how many of the younger guys have already seen this. You know, I, I was listening to um, Chris Bassett was on the radio yesterday and he's an older guy. Right. And he's like, yeah, I played in the Arizona Fall League. Like I've I've done this before. So, you know, some of like the older guys, like the Kershaw's, the Wainwrights or whatever, maybe uh, Kenley Jansen is going to be a great example because he's so yeah. slow. Those guys are going to uh, be affected. And I'm pretty interested to see what happens to the hitters. We only talk about this from the point of view of the pitchers. Mark Kenna takes forever at the plate, just like a year between pitches. Now he's going to be hustled into the box. You know, what does that do to his approach? What is it going to do to the fielders? Like, I never really thought about this till the other day. The positioning ban uh, also prevents guys from moving all around the field. But like, you don't have time to do it anymore. You know, like, would you have yeah. time to send Manny Machado out to right field 220 feet away? Maybe you wouldn't. So it's kind of all like got to work together. I'm really fascinated to see this. Yeah, we talked to Scherzer during the season and asked him about the pitch clock. And one of the things that he said, which you just brought up, was how, one, he's like, I'm going to weaponize it against the hitters because they're used to having all their time. I'm going to make them get ready. And like, you don't have a lot of time to think about what's going to be coming next, which I, I mean, like, we love baseball for what it was. And obviously, like, people get scared whenever change comes in. But personally, these changes feel like they're going to be great for baseball. Shift is maybe a little more up in the air, but the pitch clock, like when we saw in the fall league, like you said, James, the way that the game moves is so enjoyable. It really makes like, I don't want baseball to be over quicker, but it really does make the game feel like it's fast paced. Yeah, it's not, it's not less baseball. It's just more baseball and less time. There's less yes. not baseball happening. Higher baseball density. I also remember there was a series where the Mets played the Cardinals in 2021 and Terry Collins was actually doing the games with Howie Rose on the radio. And Terry's just, he's a baseball guy. He would get down the field and talk to the players. And he said he had a conversation with, I believe it was Paul DeYoung pregame, in a game where Adam Wainwright was pitching. And DeYoung said he likes playing defense so much for Wainwright because of that rhythm he gets in, because of the speed which he works. It allows the defender to be on their toes a little bit more, stop lying, sitting back on their heels, and that makes them play better defense. And if you look back years of this wonderful StatCast day that we have, Adam Wainwright routinely has some of the best OAA behind him in the entire league, even like spades better than the Cardinals, other pitchers, which is it's funny to hear. And I'm sure this must be one of the most incredible things for you ever here when like something that a player says actually bears itself out in the data, like for us to see. In yeah, the no, it's cool. You can tell they're paying attention. Um, they're obviously using it. They know about it. And I think what teams have gotten better at is uh, communicating it to them. Like it's cool to see some of the ex players like Dan Heron's a great example. You know, guys like that who uh, lived the life on the field. You know, Brian Bannister is a good one but can also communicate it to the players in a way that helps them get better. So it's like, is it nerd stuff? Yeah. But is it improving the quality of play on the field? Also? Yeah. And I think that's a pretty cool thing. So Jeremy yeah, Hefner Jeremy too. Hefner too. I mean, like I, I, the, the new wave of, you know, statistics and analytics coming into baseball is something that I think scares a lot of fans. Uh, like we, me and James talk about it a lot. We're younger generation of baseball fans We've been taking in this information a lot from guys like you and other people in the baseball world. What would you say is maybe like the easiest way for someone to ease into learning these statistics so that they can understand the game a little deeper? Well, follow me on Twitter. I think that would definitely be a good start. <laughs> Plug it. Go ahead. <laughs> no, um, I think I think pretty much every broadcast is integrating this stuff in some way. And now that we're it's 15 years in the pitch tracking, right? You know, seven or eight years in the stack cast. And I think it's gone at different speeds and it's taken some of them uh, a little longer to get there but 
a lot of this just goes into cool visuals. Like you don't have to make everything a physics class. Um, the, one of the things I like, and it's just like the simplest thing to understand is uh, they'll do like the high home shot where you can see the infield and they'll just show the hitter spray chart, like in the five pie slices on the field and like they'll color code it. And it's like, you don't need to understand anything about how, what went into that. It's like, Oh, this guy usually hits the ball over there. And before this year, at least I think it helped you understand why there might be four guys standing on the right side of second base. Cause like, if you didn't know that was going to happen, if you don't know who Joey Gallo is, you'd be like, <laughs> what the hell is this? But when you see that and it's like, Oh, he only hits the ball to that side, like 4% of the time. Why would you bother wasting a fielder there? I think that's the kind of stuff that can really like help you get into the advanced analytics of the game and mostly understand what teams are trying to do without even realize that you're learning something, you know, like, yeah, you can go deep into spin axis and seam shifted wake and all that kind of stuff if you want to, but anything that can really just be passed along in a leaderboard in a visual. Uh, I think that's what makes a big impact. You mentioned the incorporation of these kind of advanced stats and broadcast. You yourself have been central to that with the Statcast broadcast and ESPN. How have you liked that? Has that been fun? And what are the plans for the Statcast broadcast? Uh, in the it's future? mostly dead. Uh, I think yes, it was super fun. Like an, an unbelievable thing. Well, no. <laughs> come on. It well, was awesome. we, didn't, we didn't do it last year. We just did the the home run derby. All right. So I guess, victim yeah. of our own success in some sense because it was a second screen and. Once uh, the main show kind of starts taking all the cool stuff, including our producer, Andy Jacobson and Eduardo <laughs> Perez and hiring David Cohn, who, you know, talks about this stuff better than I do. And oh, yeah, is a borderline Hall of Fame caliber pitcher. <laughs> How do you uh, second screen against that? that? That's where it gets a little tough. And that's a good thing, right? Like we we're almost a, a testing ground for a lot of this stuff where it's like, hey, can you even put this garbage on TV and will it be interesting and entertaining? And I like to think that most of it was. And now that it's on like main shows. So for me to say, well, we're going to come up with something that's like way beyond that. Then you start getting into the territory of, oh, wait, is this still entertaining TV or am I just like putting spreadsheets on the air now? You know what I mean? <laughs> so I've been helping with the main show, like behind the scenes, give them storylines and stats and stuff like that. But um, I'm I'm happy that uh, in our brief time on the air, we were able to make a difference. And I can always say I got to call a playoff game at Wrigley Field. Like that's cool. That's as hell. I'm never going to forget no, yeah. that that's awesome. I mean, I we we loved it obviously as like big stat nerds and baseball guys. So I mean, stinks that it's not going to be exist. But like you said, it is good that it's now getting more incorporated into just the main broadcast, which is always good. Yeah, no, I mean that's they let Payne and Eli do the oh, second broadcast against well, Joe Buck. Like this seems like <laughs> I have I have a brother. Uh, I could he's not a huge baseball fan. He mostly likes soccer, but I could get him on there. We could talk about baseball and see how that goes. <laughs> it's perfect. All right, so. I'll pitch it with you, the ESPN. <laughs> I, I feel like we should probably move into the Mets now a little bit more just because there feels like there's a lot of storylines and conversation with this team. Obviously, won 101 games last year. A little bit disappointing finish and a crazy, crazy offseason of, you know, could-haves, should-haves, maybe, all, all this stuff all over the place. So Mets really did bring in a lot of new guys, and I think one of the most interesting guys is Kodai Senga. So as a guy who does a lot of projecting and has, you know, all this data. What do you think about a guy like Kodai Senga coming from Japan? I, I'm going to take the cop out answer and say, I don't know. I, I don't have, we don't have Japanese data, right? So yeah. I can't tell you that much about how his pitches move. Like I can read the scouting reports the same as everybody else. Um, we can say, Oh, you know, the way his pitches move probably remind you of this guy or that guy. But until we see him, uh, we're just, we're just not going to know, you know, all the scouting reports seem good, but I'd be lying if I said I had like a great projection on him or a great insight to his pitch data. Cause until he gets in front of the cameras, we're just not going to have much. That's, and that's fair. 
without being able to project Kodai Sang, who's I think probably the biggest question mark on this Mets team, is there any player you're looking at as someone who's underrated, someone who might be able to break out, someone who Mets fans might not be super aware of right now, but should be excited about? Well, I mean, I'm interested to see if Tommy Pham can bounce back. I thought that was a pretty fun uh, signing. I think it's a good it's a good fit for him. I, I would not really want him as my 600 plate appearance everyday outfielder guy. Like, I, I don't think that's necessarily where he is anymore. Um, but as the backup who takes some plate appearances when necessary, maybe DHs a little bit, I, I think there's still some life in his bat, you know, because if you go look at the, uh, you know, the stack as metrics, um, it's not like quite as good as, as it once was, but obviously he's, he's getting a little older and um, his hard hit rate was like 90th percent last year. That's, that's still pretty good. You know, is he a great fielder anymore? No. Is he strike out too much? Probably. But you put him in the right situations. You know, what What I think they're going to do, what I think every smart team is doing now is it's not so much platoon like lefty and righty. It's more like of a platoon against like pitch shapes. You know, so if they say, man, this guy's swing, like the way his swing goes, it's really geared towards, and I don't know what it is for fam. Maybe it's, you know, sinker balls. Maybe it's high pitches. He's spin, whatever it is for him. That Those are the matchups they're going to find to put him in. Um, and I don't think every team is good at doing that. But like we know the Giants were good at it a couple of years yeah. ago. And if you can still hit the ball as hard as he can, I think you're going to be surprised how much production you'll still get out of him. That's good because I, I feel like for me, I, I like wasn't quite sure of the fit for Tommy Pham necessarily. And I feel like a lot of Mets fans, too, they, they see Tommy Pham as a guy who was an all star and now is going to be coming into a backup role after maybe a couple down years. So being able to explain like, no, this is actually the perfect role for him. Probably, probably helping out some of our Mets fans here. So we appreciate that that you're you're keeping them a little calm with that. What well, we know, whatever I can do. You got a left-handed uh, DH and Vogelbaum. You got some lefties in the outfield. I mean, it's going to be good. It's going to work out. Vogelbaum, Vogelback. <laughs> it's also it's funny when you say that too about pitch shapes. I remember a few years ago. I actually think I sent Mark an article from Baseball Prospectus by Robert yeah, Orr, yeah. who was one of their newer, newer age, younger writers. Yeah, and he wrote about how the Giants were a team that did that the first time, and then just. I would just scroll around Savant and StatCast just hanging out sometimes. You always know this, like when you scroll past a guy's run values, hitters, it's so rare to find ones who are both exceptional against both fastballs and sinkers, as in just two pitches that someone will see quite often that have slightly different shapes. And then, again, this kind of like comment I made like 10 minutes ago. It's so cool when like you see someone say something and then you can like put it to like other data that's really easy to digest. It's it's fun. It's truthfully fun to like see these baseball things and realize them. Yeah, no, it's cool. I mean, it makes you feel like you understand the game more and it's wild to think after all this time, especially now that like I work in baseball full time, that you can still learn more about this game that you've been watching for decades and decades. But there's always something new. And I think that's part of why I love it so much. OK, so you mentioned working in baseball full time. And I think we would be we, we got to ask this one. We saw that you used to work for Bullmore as a digital content manager. How did you how did you go from there to where you're at now? Because those two things don't seem to overlap at all. No, they don't. Um, <laughs> I haven't thought about that one in a minute. Okay. So I didn't get my first full-time job in baseball until I was 35, right? And um, it was kind of a side hustle for a while. And I had regular day jobs. Uh, for a bunch of years, I worked at a digital PR film uh, firm as a project manager and building websites and all kind of stuff. And then the first time I tried to, I got sick of that. And I tried to make it work in sports and I went to do the freelance thing, writing for fan graphs and being an editor or whatever. And that was fine. And then uh, we were about to start a family and I'm like, well, I think I might need a real job with real health insurance and stuff. And because me and my wife is pregnant with our with our first child. And uh, so I started looking around for jobs that were similar to what I'd had before, you know, doing the the uh, project management, building website stuff and Bullmore. So I used to live in Hell's Kitchen and um, Bullmore had their main office was like 
eight blocks from me and they were paying pretty much what I'd made at the agency. And it, I would say it was an easy gig, but like what they were doing was not necessarily challenging. They were at the time, you know, they'd bought up uh, AMF and all these other bowling brands and they were trying to consolidate all the brand websites. And it's, I'm bored even talking about it, but that's, <laughs> that's basically what it was. Um, so I did that. And then uh, I believe like <laughs> on days where MLB network was like, would you come over? And I'd say, sure. And I would block my coworkers on Twitter because I didn't really want them to know that's what I was doing that day. <laughs> Not that they cared because they weren't really baseball fans. But yeah, that's what happened. And I did that for a year and a half or so. It was like a perfectly fine job. And I liked the people I worked with and it was totally fine. Um, but I was also like writing for MLB at the time, uh, freelance for the first year. And then that turned into a full time job. And then I got to quit the bowling job, and that was a pretty good day. Are you a bowler at all? Like, is, this, is it an activity you enjoy for well, leisure? I enjoy it. I'm not good at it. <laughs> but yeah, it's fun to do. Hey, Rob Bradford here. You guys know I'm always up for a good MVP story. And one of the best stories is Wasabi Technology. Wasabi is the world's hottest cloud storage company, and it's become the go-to provider for professional and collegiate sports teams, including 20 major league baseball teams like the Red Sox and NHL teams like the Bruins and Vancouver Canucks. Even the Liverpool Football Club is getting in on the Wasabi action. So why is Wasabi the MVP? Well, Wasabi was purpose-built to free businesses from skyrocketing storage costs and unpredictable transaction fees that the Amazons of the world are charging. In fact, Wasabi is up to 80% less than those hyperscalers and doesn't charge a cent for businesses to access their data. From Wasabi's AI-enabled intelligent media storage, Wasabi Air, to the industry's only cloud storage service with triple protection against cyber criminals, data deletion, and ransomware, Wasabi's taking the lead in driving innovation in data storage and helping sports teams to unleash the power of their data. Wasabi, another Boston-based championship team. You were a big part of the re, um, the rebirth of the Hardball Times about six or seven years ago. I just want to ask, like that was like I don't know, I that was one of the things that kind of made me like develop a deeper love for baseball when I was like in college and like away from my parents' cable package, watching the Mets every single night for free. So kind of helped like reinvigorate my love. So what was it like to just be to have a hand in that like? coming back for a certain like not back but just like being reinvigorated for a certain period of time yeah so uh like i like i said before when i quit the pr job and i was doing the freelance thing um, at the time i was writing for fan so i was doing that a couple times a week and um i got to be pretty friendly with david appleman who is the you know creator of fan and like one of the best people on the planet and it came up that they uh had i think purchased the hardball times and they would they were going to like redesign it because it was on the super old template. And I was like, you know, David, you probably don't have time to build a website. I I a freelancer now and I know how to build websites. Like, can I help you build this website? And so they said, Yeah. And um kind of took on a little side contract and I got someone to help me design it and then I built it, which was super fun. So like I would spend my days writing fangrass articles and then at night I would, you know, be writing up the code for this website. And uh, I was pretty happy with the way it came out. And I was sad to see that the pandemic kind of put an end to that. Hopefully it can come back at some point. But yeah, it was pretty wild to be like, yeah, I helped design that. I never wrote there, I don't think, but I helped design it. Bringing it back to the Mets as much as, you know, I, I do love hearing about Bullmore and that that whole, you know, what happened before coming into baseball. The Mets, I feel like, also have a really interesting bullpen with a bunch of different like arms and guys and ways that they throw in one name in particular, another new guy, Brooks Raley. A lot of people see Brooks Raley as a guy who's going to be the left-handed arm that the Mets have been dying for. If you ask any Mets fan, what is one thing they've needed for the last five years? A left-handed reliever. And Brooks Raley is probably going to fill that role. When you look at his traditional numbers, ERA and such, you see some of the high numbers from years past. 
But me and James, we see he goes to the Rays. He's with the Astros, two of the smarter pitching organizations, now comes to the Mets. Had a great season last year. Like, what's your thoughts on Brooks Raley? I think you nailed it right there. Right. Anytime a guy spends time with the Astros and the Rays, that's the first thing you're like, okay, well, they see something there. He has a really interesting skill. Obviously, he doesn't throw hard. He's not like collecting a ton of strikeouts. He's getting a little bit on the older side, too. But he is maybe the best guy in baseball at preventing hard contact. Like his his hard hit rates, uh, like preventing hard hit rates are just off the scale. And that's a pretty valuable thing. If you can prevent the worst kind of contact, I don't want to say it doesn't matter how many strikeouts you have, because, you know, of course it does. But um, he is a guy who will really go up there as a lefty and say, I'm not going to give up the big home run at this spot. And, you know, who knows how long that's going to sustain. Sometimes that's a stat that's not that stable year to year, but he's been back from Asia for three or four years now, I think, and pretty much every single year he's been absolutely elite at it. And, you know, throws like four or five different kinds of pitches and he can spot them where he wants. So he's going to be an interesting guy. Like if you're if you're thinking of a left handed fire breathing 2016 Andrew Miller type, this is not exactly that. Um, but if you want a guy who's going to come up and get you the double play, get out of a tough inning without allowing like an extra base hit, I think he's going to fit in really well. You mentioned limiting hard contact. Do you think that like soft contact and being able or, or is going to be even less effective now with the shift being banned? Because you can't kind of like sneak one through maybe aside, or do you think it's not really going to be that much of a difference? That's a great question. It's, it's going to be hard to say until we see it. Um, I, I do think people are overstating what they think the shift ban really is. I think they think that it means the four infielders have to stand in the traditional four infielder spot, yeah. which isn't true. I, I was talking to someone today and they shared with me uh, an Eric Hosmer quote. It was at the uh, the Cubs fan convention or whatever. And he's like, yeah, you know, it's really disheartening when you hit a ball hard up the middle and it's not a hit. And I'm like, yeah, but it's still not going to be a hit. <laughs> the shortstop is still going to be standing up the middle, just like one step over, you know, to the left side of second base. So I, I think the people who think, oh, yeah, you know, Anthony Rizzo's batting average is going up by 70 points or whatever. Uh, they're going to be disappointed. That said, I do think. You're going to you're going to expose some of the fielders, maybe who were only at these spots because they could be positioned that well. Like if the Dodgers are really going to play Max Muncy at second base still, I'm fascinated to see how that goes. You know, the, the Mets don't have that problem because Lindor is great and McNeil is capable enough at second base. Um, but those are the kind of situations where it's like, I wonder if that's still going to work the way it used to work. So we're in a weird context right now of people interpreting the game of baseball where some people are like uber excited over the shift ban because they think it's going to, you know, bring the game back to their youth in the old days, but really might not do anything. But it might do something kind of like you said, like for those second basemen who maybe don't have the most range in the world. I know this is something that's bothered Mark for a very long time. So I kind of want to bring it up, tee him up because he might be uncomfortable approaching the subject. But Jonathan Scope has routinely <laughs> led StatCast no way and Mark one time spent an entire evening of his life, not even kidding with you with this, watching every single play Jonathan Scope made over like a three-month period. So I want to maybe clear the floor for you guys to hash this out. Why does Jonathan Scope have this high of an OAA, and is he an elite defender? I don't know. I <laughs> Tr Trust me, I, I noticed this as well. Um, we looked into it like three different times during the season. I, I even looked into it again like after the season, and I know. At first, I think I looked at his home road splits because I was like, OK, is there something weird about Detroit? And I was like, is the tracking camera off? Like, OK, maybe that's it. And it was like identical OAA on home and on the road. <laughs> that I guess that's actually the second thing I did. The first thing is I looked at all the previous years, at OAA and DRS. They both had him as very good, not as insanely good as he was in 22. But we're, we're not talking about, I don't know, Kyle Schwarber all of a sudden like popping as yeah. like the best defender. You know, do I actually think Jonathan Scope is the best infield defender in baseball? I do not. But. 
that's what the number said. And no matter how many times I looked at it, I could not come up with a good reason. You know, it's like, is it lefties and righties? No. Is it, he's not positioned interestingly compared to everybody else. The Tigers don't have like a wild uh, shift or shift aversion. Is it something in the way he plays? Like, I don't know. Does he make every, every opportunity harder? Cause he takes a step back when he catches, like I, we tried all of it and I could not come up with a reason to invalidate it. So even though I'm with you, I don't totally buy it. Uh, I couldn't give you a good reason why it's not true is the way to say it. And, and regardless, yeah. I still think he's very good. Like, I don't think it's like, oh, this is absurd that he's rating super well. I didn't think he'd be that well. Yeah, when I when I spent that evening, as James said, watching Jonathan scope ground balls because that's I had nothing better to do. I was like, the thing that I learned, I was like, he just makes, he does make like a lot of plays. That's what it really seems like is that if a ball's hit towards him, he pretty much does make the play. So I was like, I guess that counts for something. It, you know, it adds up. Uh, I don't have his stats in front of me, but I remember when, when I looked into it, I said something like, you know, for what like very little value errors have, he had like three and like 1100 innings or whatever. Yeah. So at the very least, he was not making these big mistakes that were going to kill him. You know, he's not a high variance guy like Javi Bias is a good example who make like the insane plays and then kind of boof an easy one. You know, scope was just no mistakes is like Swanson, Denzel Swanson a lot in that way last year. Another stat the stack has rolled out to the end of the year last year swing path and swing speed specifically is there been more development on that and where do you think that that style that metric is going and what can yeah it, uh, it was a pilot program last year just in houston and dodger stadium so extra cameras very very high frame rate cameras um and it was mostly just to kind of see you know like this is this has been studied in labs and you know hitting gyms and whatever forever but it was kind of a, a test to see you know does this work in a game environment like will it actually tell you anything and so I wrote about it a little bit in uh, in July with very limited data. You know, it's like two months of data from two parks. So like, I know I'm missing a ton of guys, right? But even in that time, with a minimum of like four swings or whatever, I said it was like, okay, well, Julio Rodriguez is number one, and Patrick Mazika is all the way at the bottom. I think maybe we have something here, you know, like that that tracks. And uh, I think I tweeted that, and Patrick Mazika, to his immense credit, liked it, which I appreciated because. Seems like a guy who's like totally aware of the kind of player he is. You know, like oh, Stephen Kwan sure. was at the bottom. I'm like, that's fine. Anyway, that it, the uh, as a proof of concept, it worked, right? Like, you could you could tell how fast the guys were swinging, and um, what's going to happen, I believe, is this upcoming season. It should be in all 30 stadiums, which is great. So we'll start getting data from everywhere. Nice. I'm, I I expect that at some point we'll have a whole bunch of information about it available on um, baseball savant. I would caution that will not be day one. <laughs> so we need the data to come in. We need to make sure it works. We need to, you know, see what metrics we might have. But the, it opens the door, you know, to like all sorts of things we might envision that it might not happen this year. It might take two years, three years, whatever. But um, wouldn't it be cool to know, let's say, what pitcher misses the most bats above the bat, right? Yeah. Or like, oh, my slider misses the bat by eight inches. So uh, your slider only misses the bat by one inch. So you've got like no margin of error, right? Or swing speed's great, obviously. But who squares up the ball the most, you know, or who gets the most hits off the very end of the bat or who has the most uppercut swing or swings down or, you know, a million other things. It really opens up a lot of doors because the bat had never really been tracked before. So technology works, which is great. It's going to be in every park, which is great. And um, really all that's left after that is connection, collection, analysis, all the usual. That sounds sick. Yeah. I, I mean, more data is always good. I'll never Pretty complain cool. with getting more insight. And like, I don't know, from from baseball, it's it sounds weird because it was never considered to be like a very like, like you said, there there's hitting labs, 
they're they're doing scientific experiments on what's going on in baseball, which scares people. But I don't know. To me, it makes me like super excited to think about that. We're we're still like almost optimizing how the game's still being played, and it's it's still at an incredibly high level right now without optimization. Let's say. Yeah, I mean, I think the hitters need a weapon. Like pretty much everything's been for the pitchers. Yeah, and you know, I think you've seen what's happened over the last twenty years. Give the hitters a chance now. <laughs> Definitely. So I feel like a good way to wrap up, you know, this this episode of the podcast would be maybe just give I don't want to say give a prediction because that's uh, that's being put on the spot quite a bit there. But maybe just an outlook of what you think the Mets could look like in the 2023 season, what Mets fans can expect. Well, I mean, I think they could look like a World Series champion. I don't love that. But, but at, at <laughs> the same time, I think they're in a three way tie at the top of their own division because the Braves are really good. And I think the Phillies are improved, even though obviously losing Harper for a couple months is not going to help. So uh, I, I guess I would say I'm not sure that I'm going to pick them to win the division, but I still might pick them to win the World Series, even though that kind of sounds like it doesn't make sense. But that's sort of where I'm leaning, uh, because if they get to the playoffs, which with three wild cards and a very weak NL Central, I, I assume they'll get to the playoffs. Like we saw last year, literally anything can happen. And if and I know this is just like the world's biggest if. If you get to the playoffs and if you have Verlander and Scherzer healthy, um, that that's pretty good. I, I will take those guys, you know, so um, it's going to be a good season. It's going to be a fun season. The one the one like undercurrent I've seen that I would disagree with and you guys follow Mets Twitter more than I do. So please tell me if I'm wrong. But people seem to think uh, that, you know, the team spent all this money to essentially retain guys or replace guys like, you know, swap out to ground for Verlander. And that means they didn't get better. I sort of reject that because on one hand, they won 101 games. How much better are they really going to get? And on the other hand, yeah, like you spend a lot of money and you're retaining the same center fielder. But if you didn't, you don't have that center fielder. And now your center fielder is, I don't know, Cody Bellinger or, or whomever. So it's like <laughs> you, you need those guys are free agents. It just so happens like that the half the pitching staff hit free agency last year. You got to fix that somehow. It, it's not better if it's different. It, you got to bring back the guys who are already good. So I reject that a little bit. Like, I think it was a great team last year. I think it's going to be a great team again this year. Uh, and it's going to be a fun season to watch. I think I can speak for James here in saying we we both agree with that. We're very much on the uh, realistic, optimistic. Uh, we know what's going on with the Mets and how good they can be and should be. So the idea of them not getting better makes them worse. It's like, yeah, like you said, they won 101 games. How many games can they actually physically win? Like it's baseball is really hard. The best teams in baseball lose 60 games a year like it's it's not an easy sport it's also funny just hearing the uh the perspective from the outside of Mets Twitter because it is a bit of a battleground out there it's a war zone sometimes people do get trapped in that echo chamber and it can it can be dangerous but that's why you know we have this show and we have these podcasts I have great smart people like you on Mike who can help drag people out of it a little bit and you know get people excited about what should be a good no, season it's okay to get a little bit angry I mean that's what being a fan <laughs> is about right like what's the fun if you can't yell at the umpire or something oh of course no, without a doubt. But yeah, maybe, maybe in a few years we, that won't be happening. But Mike, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. We've been wanting you on since day one. We're we're huge fans of yours, so it's really awesome to finally get a chance to speak with you and talk about you know stats, analytics, the Mets, any anything baseball conversation with you is awesome. Please tell everyone at home where they can find you, what you're up to, and give yourself a little plug here. All right, you can find me on Twitter, uh, Mike underscore Petriello. Uh, we're finishing up the MLB Network Top 10s uh, this week. And at MLB.com and BaseballSavant.com, we are always rolling out new new tools and a couple more upcoming in the next couple of weeks. Awesome. Mike. Amazing. Thank you so much, Mike. Glad, glad to Thank have you. Thank you, man. Thanks, Appreciate please. it.
Get up, get up, get up.